Philippians chapter 2. It is our habit here to work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want to see what it is that the Word of God communicates to us in its context as we move through. And so we want to study. There is so much depth of richness to the Word of God, and we want to know everything that God has to say for us, and we want to know how that applies into our lives. And so we, we set our minds, we set our task on this, this critical task of understanding and declaring what is it that the Word of God says, what does it mean, and how can we be living our lives in light of that? And so we've been working through the book of Philippians, and the book of Philippians traces for us this, this overall masterful theme of how can we have divine joy in the midst of our earthly journey. We live lives out here on this earth, and, and we endure hardships, we face difficulties, we have trials and tribulations that come into our lives. Well, how is it that we can face these things and yet still have joy in the midst of it all. Well, that is what the Apostle Paul is writing about in in broad picture terms. He, He writes about how God is able to continue to use even the difficult things in our lives and bring about great things through those hardships. And so he, ca- he calls us to have a, a good perspective even in the midst of these things. But he does recognize that the church that he's writing to, the, the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, he's writing to this church and they are a, a suffering church. They are enduring hardship. They are doing persecution on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul himself, he is, as he writes this, he is currently sitting in prison. He's in jail. The reason he's in jail is because he was proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ. And there were some individuals who did not appreciate that message. And so they have arrested him and thrown him into prison. And so he writes to them. And as we've been tracing the flow of thought from the Apostle Paul, as we have seen how he has written, he he urges us to have unity amongst one another. Unity in the body of Christ. When we're facing difficulty, when we're facing hardship, when we're facing persecution that might come against us, there's no time for fighting amongst ourselves. There's no time for for petty power struggles amongst our churches. Rather, we need to have unity amongst one another. Well, in order to exercise that unity, we need to have humility We have to be willing to to set aside what might be our own desires, what might be our own things that we might like to see happen. We have to be willing to set aside those things for the sake of serving others. And that is what Paul has been calling us to in Philippians chapter 2. As we have gone on, he has given us the example of Jesus Christ from verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. And he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. And so He gives us that encouragement that, yeah, this is a difficult thing. It's hard to set aside what we want, to set aside our own desires, to set aside what we want to see happen. It's difficult to set that aside. But if we are willing to gaze upon the example of Jesus Christ, and if we were to see that, and willing to allow God to work within us, we see that it is God who works in us to bring this about within our lives, as we saw in verse 13. Well, as we have come down last week, we were in verses 19 through 24, looking at the example of a man named Timothy. 
Timothy was a man who was exemplifying the very things that Paul was calling the church to practice. He says, this is how you are to live your life. Well, here's a man who is living that out. And he gave the example of Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then he says in verse 21, they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Timothy was a man who who was willing to set aside his own desires for the sake of serving others and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, now as we come to verse 25 and following, we're going to find the example of another man who is likewise serving in a similar capacity, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. It's a bit of an unusual name. I don't... I don't think I've ever ran into an Epaphroditus. Anybody ran into an Epaphroditus? I don't think so. It's not really a very common name. It's a very unusual name. Well, who is this guy? Who is Epaphroditus? Well, truthfully, we don't have a lot of information in the Scriptures about who this man is. In fact, the only time he's mentioned is here in this book, once in this chapter, chapter 2, and then one time in chapter 4. So we have virtually no information about him other than what we find right here in this context. But what we are going to find is that this was a man who was willing to serve others, even at significant cost to his own life. Even if it were to cost him everything, he was willing to serve others. And so we're going to see from our text here today that Epaphroditus, he was a model servant, even though he was a distressed servant. And therefore, Paul is going to say he is a servant worthy of honor. A model servant, a distressed servant, and a servant worthy of honor. Look with me at verse 25. Paul writes, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul makes five identifying statements about who Epaphroditus is. He describes him with these five words. He says he's a brother, he's a worker, he's a soldier, he's a messenger, and a minister. And we're going to look at at each of those things as we see Epaphroditus as a model servant, an exemplary servant for us. First, he says he is a brother. He is a brother. Paul, he frequently uses familial language when talking about those within the body of Christ. All those who are in Christ, they have been adopted into the family of Christ. And so if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we can rightly identify one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the family of God. He has adopted us. He's brought us into his family. And so Paul identifies Epaphroditus as that. He is his brother, But there is a closeness connected here where where Paul seems to be expressing a, a special level of affection with Epaphroditus as he identifies him as his brother. Just a few verses before, Paul identified Timothy and kind of talked about how he is, as just like a son with a father, Timothy served with the Apostle Paul. Paul used that, that father-son terminology with Timothy at other points. It seems that it's possible that Paul maybe led Timothy to faith in Christ. So in a sense, he is his son in the faith. 
Or else he closely discipled Timothy and, and brought him along in the faith, and Timothy served with the Apostle Paul. Well, here, he identifies Epaphroditus as his brother. As his brother, someone who has come alongside the Apostle Paul, and he's worked alongside one another. Paul is not ashamed to be closely associated with Epaphroditus. In fact, he's proud to say, yes, that man, that is my brother. You know, sometimes our siblings can, can do things to embarrass us. I don't know if that's something you experienced growing up. I certainly did. I was one of seven children, and there are many times where it's just like, okay, am I really related to this person over here? That's just the reality of life sometimes, right? Or just, that can happen. But then there are other times where our siblings might do something and, and we're proud to call them my brother. Like, yeah, yeah he, he, my brother, he did something cool. That, that's my brother. I, I'm proud that, that that's my association to him. And it seems that that is the case with the Apostle Paul. Yes, that is my brother. Yeah, we're related. That's right. He's happy to call him his brother. He also calls him his fellow worker. He is his brother. He is his fellow worker. The word there for fellow worker often refers to individuals who well, they share the same trade, right? They're co-workers. They labor together in the ministry. Again, we don't have much by way of details of what this looked like for Epaphroditus. We don't have a whole breadth of, of information like if we go through the book of Acts. Epaphroditus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. A lot of names there written about the, the service that they did, but Epaphroditus, he is not one of them. But even though we don't have much detail, we can be sure of this, that Epaphroditus was engaged in the similar ministry that Paul was engaged in. He calls him my fellow worker. We worked alongside one another, a co-laborer in the ministry. You know, there's, there's something special about a relationship between two individuals within a church when they serve alongside one another in some capacity in ministry. We've seen this true in, in local church settings when we're just working alongside one another to do the various forms and functions of the church. We find that this is true when we go outside of the walls of the church and serve in the community in different capacities. When we serve alongside one another and, and try to proclaim the gospel alongside one another, there's a bond that gets developed through that close gospel ministry together that, that cannot be replicated in, in some other way. We can gather together on a Sunday morning and we greet one another and, and that's fantastic. It's great that we have these conversations, these fellowshipping together. It's, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. But that is deepened to such a great extent when we get involved in ministry together and when we are engaged in gospel activity together. There's a new depth to that relationship that is built. You know, I mentioned this, this coming Saturday, we're going to be traveling out to Newburgh, Indiana for this IFCA regional, just kind of like a mini Bible conference, and we're going to be enjoying that time of fellowship together. There's a lot of people that are going to be coming to that event from a variety of churches that would have no reason to know each other otherwise, have no connection to know each other. They're from different cities or from different parts of Illinois and Indiana, and yet they're going to come together and they're going to embrace each other. They're going to rejoice in fellowshipping with one another this coming Saturday. Why? Why is that the case? Well, it's because one of the other functions of our regional is Bible camp. That took place earlier this summer. Where there's, we, this, our regional, our churches gather together 
we work together to put on this Bible camp. And the different churches that are part of our regional are responsible for different activities and different aspects of the Bible camp. We have individuals from different churches that they're serving alongside one another. They're seeking to disciple children in the faith together. They're seeking to help children understand the gospel better. They're, they're counseling children together. They're praying over the children together. I've had the opportunity to speak at this Bible camp. I've only been able to go to the Bible camp two years for the full week, and then one year I was just there for one day. But even just in that short time, just being able to observe the fellowship that takes place of the workers as they labor there, as they, they seek to minister to the children. And then I walk into the, the fellowship hall or the, the, the mess hall where the cafeteria is while the kids are out playing games, and I see groups of counselors huddled together praying over the children. There is a bond that is developed through that ministry together, working alongside one another, co-laborers in ministry, a bond that is developed that cannot be developed any other way. We can get together, we can fellowship, and it's great, and I don't want to make light of that, I don't want to denigrate that at all. We're saying there's so much more depth that it can be av- uh, available to us in our relationships when we are co-laborers in the gospel with one another. And that is the case between Paul and Epaphroditus. Co-laborers, co-workers together. Relationships that are formed through the working together for ministry purposes. So he is a brother, he is a fellow worker, he is also a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. How many of you guys remember the song, I'm in the Lord's Army? Right? It's just a simple kid song. I'm in the Lord's army. Right? I may never march in the infantry, and we always did the hand motions, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Right? It's, a, it's kind of a silly song. It's just a fun song that kids like to sing. It, we do it, might do it in Sunday schools or in our, our children's church and things like that, but it, that song actually reflects biblical language about who we are in Christ. Paul likes to use warfare terminology to describe the Christian walk. We have the passage in Ephesians where we're called to put on the armor of God. Well, why do we need armor if we're not engaged in warfare? But he says to put on the armor of God because we battle, and this is what he says in Ephesians 6, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says there is a spiritual war that is being waged over our souls. And we are to put on the armor of God to protect us defensively so that we may withstand the the forces of the evil one. But also offensively, he gives us our our weapons of our warfare, the sword of the spirits and prayer. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes that we are called to be good soldiers who are singularly minded that we might please our commander. And Paul uses other warfare and soldier terminology in places like 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Corinthians 10. So this is, this is something that Paul continues to come back to. He recognizes that the Christian life is a warfare. Right? And we experience this, don't we? Every time that, that we seek to do what is right and we have a, a temptation to do that which is evil in God's sight, to do that which is wrong... And we have this temptation, and we have this, this warfare that goes on within our own hearts where we, we know what is right to do, and yet we, we feel ourselves being drawn, being tempted to do whatever it is that we ought not to be doing. That's warfare. 
spiritual warfare over our very souls. As we engage with with unbelievers in the gospel of Christ, seeking to provide to them the, the good news, the hope of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, He was God in human flesh, He came and lived that perfect life. And He died on the cross for your sin and for mine. And when He did so, He gave the the promise that all those who would come in faith would receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. When we present that message, there is warfare in that moment. Maybe we don't feel it in that moment, but it's going on. I can promise you that. That is what is happening in those moments. As Paul says, it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we destroy strongholds and arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. But we engage in warfare through the Word of God and through prayer. That is how we fight our battles. It is with the Word of God and with prayer. Sometimes we might get ex- discouraged about some of our evangelistic encounters, like, oh, you know, what if, what if someone raises a question and I don't know how to answer that question? You know, what if, what if somebody, you know, talks about this and I, I just don't know how to answer that? And, and some people like to study method, uh, apologetic methodologies to try to learn how to answer those, and those are fine, those are great. But really the best thing to do to be equipped for how to engage in that kind of uh, interaction, those kinds of dialogue, is to study the Scriptures, to know what God's Word has to say, to know how to respond with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes through the knowledge of God. It is through these things that Paul says that we destroy strongholds and arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So we're in this battle. Those who have trusted in Christ are in his army. We are soldiers for Christ. And Paul looks at Epaphroditus and he says, that guy, he's my fellow soldier. I've gone to battle with him. We have labored in the trenches together. We have labored on our knees in prayer over, over that man, another man's soul. We've gone to war together. He's my comrade. He is my fellow soldier. And he looks at Epaphroditus as his brother in arms, enduring the raging of the enemy together. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes in our, in our battle, you know, we talk about there's spiritual warfare and there is a spiritual battle that is being raged around us. But often that spiritual battle can have consequences in the physical world, right? We, Paul noticed that himself. I mean, he's, he's in jail, right? He's sitting in jail as a result of some of this spiritual warfare that has gone on. Paul has endured tremendous suffering. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they've endured persecution. The church in Philippi, they've endured persecution. Spiritual warfare. But again, they didn't seek to to fight back with physical weapons, but they shared the gospel of Christ in whatever situation they found themselves. So Paul was... You could say he was literally a prisoner of war stuck in the jail cell there, though his Roman captors might not have realized that reality. But he battled by continually sharing the gospel with his very captors. Right? He said that back in chapter 1. He says, I'm happy I'm here. I can share the gospel with the entire imperial guard. So he rejoiced in that. So we have a spiritual battle. Sometimes there are physical consequences and Epaphroditus, he himself, was engaged in the warfare. Fourth, he says he is a messenger. Epaphroditus is a messenger. The word for messenger simply means a sent one. 
Sometimes the word is used in a technical sense to speak of a capital A apostle. But in other contexts, it is used more generically to just refer to someone who is sent with a particular mission, with a particular purpose. And Paul, I think, uses the word more generically here in this context. But I just want to unfold for us the scenario of what was going on here with Epaphroditus as being the sent one from the Philippian church. The Philippians heard that Paul was in need. He was in prison. And so they wanted to supply some of that need to Paul. So he sent, they sent Epaphroditus along the way. Look at Philippians chapter 4 real quick. Philippians chapter 4 verse 18, Paul writes, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, there's our man, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul was in prison. He had no way to to get the things that he needed for life. In fact, in those days, the government didn't supply food for people in prison in those days. If you wanted to eat, someone from the outside who cared enough about you, who loved you, would have to bring food to you from the outside for you to eat. Or else you would simply literally starve to death in prison and that's one less headache for the Roman government. That's how they viewed it. Well, here's Paul. He's sitting in prison. The Philippians heard of this, heard that he had a need. And so they sent Epaphroditus to seek to meet that need. They sent him with supplies. They sent him with funds in order to meet that need. And so in that way, Epaphroditus was this messenger. He was a sent one for the Philippians. And from this, we gather that Epaphroditus, he's a trustworthy individual. The Philippians would not have sent him if they didn't trust him with the supplies, with the money, with the food or whatever it is that they sent him with. But they trusted, <clears throat> they trusted that those supplies would make it to their intended destination. So Epaphroditus was a trustworthy messenger, a faithful messenger, sent one. And finally, he's a minister. He's a brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and finally, minister to my need. This is the last descriptive word that Paul uses. Something to keep in mind as we read Scripture, that whenever we come across the word messenger in the text, we could also translate that as servant, someone who seeks to serve others. Sometimes when we think of the word minister, we can think of someone like, oh, okay, that man over there, he's, he's a minister, and we think of it in a vocational sense, that he's a his job is a pastor. He is a minister, right? We think of that in that way, in a technical sense. But often in the scriptures, and I would say even more often than not, when the word for minister is used, it's referring to someone who serves other people. It's not necessarily a pastor. It's not someone who is formally in that vocational position that it's their job to serve others, but rather they're just seeking to live life as a life of service. And such, I believe, is the case for Epaphroditus. It wasn't his vocational job to be a a pastor. He wasn't a minister in a technical sense. But he was a minister. He was a servant to the need of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, there are two words that are often used for minister to communicate the idea of someone who is a minister. One is the word that we get the concept of deacon from. A deacon is a servant. It carries the idea of waiting on tables and serving one another in a variety of ways. 
But there's a different word, and this second word is the word that is used here in Philippians. And it has more of a priestly connotation. A priestly connotation. In fact, this word is used in Romans chapter 15, and I'm just going to read that for us. It says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of the of excuse me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel there's the word the same word that is in our philippians context a minister of Jesus Christ to the gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so it has the idea of, of, a, of, of offerings of of sacrifices in fact that's again in that uh, Chapter 4 passage we read earlier when Paul is talking about the, the gift from the Philippians to Paul. Paul wrote that he received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Well, they didn't send a, a literal offering that was to be offered on an altar, but their offering served as a kind of offering that was pleasing to the Lord. So there are those, that priestly connotation. Epaphroditus is functioning as a, in a priestly manner, as a priestly minister on behalf of the Philippians as they bring their sacrificial offering to Paul. Thus, he serves both the church that he was sent from and Paul. He serves the Philippian church as they bring the gift, and then he serves Paul by the bringing of the gift. So Epaphroditus is a minister to the needs of Paul. The Philippians were responding to a a real need when they sent Epaphroditus, and he was that faithful servant who came and ministered, or he served Paul in his moments of need. And so we have these five descriptive words. Epaphroditus is a model servant, he is a brother, he is a a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a faithful messenger, and a dutiful minister or servant. This is who Epaphroditus was. He is a model servant for us as we gaze upon him. He's not just a model servant, but he's also a distressed servant. Let's continue reading as we see more of the ministry of Epaphroditus. Look with me at verse 26. Paul now gives the reasons why he is going to be sending Epaphroditus back to the church. He says in verse 26, For or because he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So here we have a distressed servant. Epaphroditus is not only a model servant for us, but he's distressed in the midst of his service. We see some internal distress in the life of Epaphroditus. He was concerned about the church that had sent him. So so here's the situation. Philippians, they want to give a gift to Paul. So they load Epaphroditus up and say, okay, now you go and you bring this gift to Paul. Along the way, he falls ill. He gets sick. And he's so sick that he nearly dies in the midst of that illness. 
somehow the church back home, they got wind that he was sick. They heard that he was sick, and so now they, they, they sent a man that they cared about, that they love, and they sent him to accomplish this very important task, but now they're worried about him. They've heard that Epaphroditus was sick, and so their hearts are concerned about this man, about their dear brother in the faith, Epaphroditus. And now, as Epaphroditus, he has recovered from his illness, and he is there with the Apostle Paul. He is serving Paul in prison. But now he hears of the church back home that they're worried about him, that they've heard that he was sick, and now they're worried about him. And so now he is distressed about this situation, distressed knowing that there's this group of people that are concerned about his welfare. We might liken this to a situation where uh, someone goes on a journey and you might tell them, okay, you know, text me when you get there. Right, this is something that my parents would do all the time, right? Text me when you get there. I'm, when I was driving off to school, it was a nine-hour drive from my home to college, and so we're driving, okay, make sure you text me when you get there. And you know, my folks just want to know that I made it to my destination safely, Right, because along the journey, there's the potential for danger. Right? There's a potential for car accidents and, and for bad weather and all these variety of things that might come along. The journey can be perilous. And so there's, they want to know that they arrived safely. Well, Epaphroditus, he couldn't exactly text them back there and say, oh, yep, arrived safely, everything's okay, all is well. He couldn't do that, right? This, the, the technology was not available in those days. And so the Philippians, they heard of his illness and they were worried about him that they had not yet heard that he had recovered. And so Epaphroditus says to Paul, hey, I, I don't want them to worry about me. I, I need to go back to them and I need to assure them that I am doing okay. This was his distress, that word for distress is, is a pretty interesting word. It's, it's a very intense word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Here, and then two times in the Gospel to speak of Jesus Christ in the garden when he was distressed about what he was about to endure on the cross. It's a very intense word of concern, distress over the situation that was there. So Epaphroditus, he loves his church family. He doesn't want them to be concerned about them. He wants to return in order to relieve them of that concern. So that was the internal distress that Epaphroditus felt on account of his deep love for the Philippian church. But not only did he face that internal distress, he also had external distress. And that was the illness that he endured. He, Paul says, indeed, he was ill, verse 27, near to death. And then Paul is going to comment again on the severity of the illness down in verse 30. He says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus, he endured great physical suffering for the sake of fulfilling the mission. In those days, I mentioned that, you know, Today, as we travel, you know, as I was driving to school, nine-hour drive from my home back to where I went to college, there was that long trip. Well, it's a re- all things considered, it's a relatively safe drive, right? We've got the highways, there's smooth roads and all that. But even then, it's not completely free from potential danger. We'll multiply that by, I don't even know how many times we talk about the the traveling that would have occurred back in those days where it was a risky business to make those journeys there were highwaymen there were robbers on the way sometimes those roads were treacherous terrain they didn't have vehicles that they could drive in if it started raining no they'd be out underneath the elements 
And so it was a dangerous, risky affair. Today, there are some that might be concerned about the potential of traveling uh, internationally or even regionally because of the potential increased contact that could be made with individuals who might be carrying COVID or something like that. Well, in those days, those kinds of risks were greatly increased because of the, the different hygiene standards that were practiced in those days. And so we have this, this reality that these kinds of travelings, they are inherently risky. There is an inherent risk in these kinds of travels, but Epaphroditus, he was willing to take on that risk. He was willing to face that potential hardship for the sake of serving others. So Paul confirms that to the Philippians that yes, he was ill even to the point of death, but now he's sending Epaphroditus back so that, he, that they may rejoice with Paul at God's mercy. As that's what he says. Indeed, he was ill, 20, verse 27, near to death, but God had mercy upon him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, you know, if, if Epaphroditus had died, I would have been so grieved. Grief upon grief. But God spared us of that. He was merciful to us. And so we rejoice. Now I'm sending him back to you that we may all rejoice together. So the church will rejoice. Paul's anxiety will be relieved knowing that the church will likewise be relieved. Clearly, this man Epaphroditus had worked himself into the hearts of many. His love and service towards others had put him in a place that everyone was concerned for his well-being. And it was this very love that he had for others that drove him to this place of hardship. But that's the key point here. Yes, he had internal distress as he was concerned for others. He had external distress as he was facing, literally, his, his life was on the line through this illness. But none of this was without purpose. There was purposeful distress so that he might serve others. He had internal distress, external distress, but it was purposeful. Why was he willing to subject himself to these things? Verse 30. He nearly died. Why? For the work of Christ. Risking his life. Why? To complete what was lacking in your service to me. So there's two parts of the reason why he is willing to subject himself. First is to proclaim Christ. This is the primary reason why he was willing to endure hardship was so that he might do the work of Christ. This is a clear reference to gospel ministry. And he wants others to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. Epaphroditus was willing to endure hardship for the sake of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Sometimes the work of Christ leads someone into prison. Such was the case with the Apostle Paul. Sometimes the work of Christ leads someone to the point of death. Such is the case for Stephen, men like Stephen in the book of Acts. (laughs) sometimes the work of Christ leads us to endure illness and suffering in that regard and such was the case for Epaphroditus but when there are souls on the line faithful ministers of the gospel they're willing to risk it all willing to risk death imprisonment and illness for the sake of loving others enough to bring the good news of the gospel of Christ into their lives no matter what the repercussions may come the gospel 
is more important and more critical than my own personal well-being and safety. They're willing to risk that for the sake of others. And this is something that I really do believe we need to think long and hard about in our day and age in which we live right now. You know, this year there were pastors in Canada who were imprisoned because they believed that the ministry of the church was too important to be shut down. And the government threw them in prison because of it. Right now, there are men, women, and children who are being hunted down, literally hunted in Afghanistan where the Taliban is taking control. Why? Because they believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. Throughout history, faithful men and women have been willing to even suffer illness to relieve the pain and sufferings of others during massive pandemics such as the Black Plague. We're, we're talking about a scale of death that would blow our minds. 50% of the people dying from the Black Plague back in the Middle Ages. And it was believers in Jesus Christ who were seeking to even minister, even at the potential risk of contracting the disease themselves. A disease that was so contagious that they believed that making eye contact with someone who had it would be enough to cause you to catch that disease yourself. Of course, we know now about how that disease is transmitted, but it was just, they didn't know that at that time, and it was so readily transmissible that that's what they thought. But believers in Jesus Christ were willing to risk that for the sake of serving, for the sake of relieving the pain and suffering of others. A more modern example, there's missionaries on the front lines in places like like Africa where they're caring for Ebola patients, willing to risk that infection for the sake of serving others. Why? Why? How is it that they're able to go so far that they're willing to risk even their own lives, their own well-being, their own safety? Because there's some things that are more important than my own safety. There are some things that are just, that matter so much more when I love others more than that that I'm even willing to risk that for the sake of the gospel, willing to risk that for the sake of serving others. And so these are men like Epaphroditus, men and women who are willing to serve for the the sake of the gospel like Epaphroditus, that others may hear the good news of Christ. And perhaps we would see just one more soul enter eternity with assurance that their sins are forgiven. So that's the first reason he was willing to die, is for the sake of the work of Christ. The second is to serve others. He says in, again in verse 30, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Of course, this is pretty closely related to the last point. Epaphroditus was willing to risk his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I want to say that, you know, that language might sound a little harsh to us. I, man, Paul, you're really giving it to the church here. Complete what was lacking in your service to me. That sounds pretty strange to our ears. Why has it got to be like that, Paul? But Paul's language, he's, he's not rebuking the church. He's not, he's not trying to communicate the idea of ingratitude or taking umbrage that they hadn't done something sooner, but rather, Paul is expressing his gratitude to the church and, and speaking to them, saying, hey, you know, I had a genuine need, and you supplied that lack. And Epaphroditus was the man who supplied that to me. 
One commentator I read this week noted that it was during this, uh, that this service was being rendered to, to Paul during a time when it was a very risky thing simply to associate with the Apostle Paul. Just being his friend, just being his pal, that's a risky thing to do because of his situation there in prison. And here was Epaphroditus putting his life on the line for the sake of serving Paul. This harkens back to the beginning of the chapter when Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let, your, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Well, that's Epaphroditus. That's Epaphroditus. A model servant, a distressed servant, but distressed with a purpose for the sake of serving others and And I'm going to close with this last point. Therefore, Paul says he is a worthy servant. He's a worthy servant. Verse 29, Paul writes, So, or therefore, so then, because of these things, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He says to receive him. This refers to a warm welcome. Welcome him in the Lord with all joy. This is a man to embrace. When he comes back home to you, give him a hug. This, welcome him warmly. This man has served on the front lines in the gospel. When he comes home, receive him and do so warmly. Such men ought to be received back into the fellowship of the church with rejoicing over what God has done in and through him. From time to time, as, as God wills, Perhaps we'll have different missionaries that might come through our church here that that will be giving a report for what God is doing in different places of the world and we'll have an opportunity to warmly welcome them and receive them and, and rejoice over what God is doing in various parts of the world. Paul says to receive Epaphroditus. And second, he says to honor such men. Receive them and honor them. The concept of honor refers to recognizing someone as precious or valuable to show respect for them. Our culture does this in a variety of of different ways, and it's going to vary from culture to culture in different places and parts of the world. I think think of those who have served in our armed forces in different ways that we can honor those individuals. I knew several individuals that every time they would encounter someone in uniform, they always made a point to say, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. That was something that they did. Whenever they saw someone, it was a way that they honored their service. Well, that's one way our culture shows honor for our military veterans. We need to think about how we can show honor to those who are faithful in gospel ministry, faithful to serve on the front lines of gospel activity. I've mentioned the IFCA a few times today. Again, this church is a part of the IFCA as a, as a network of churches Every year they have their international convention where uh, uh, representatives from all these churches gather together and every year they present an award to someone who has lived lived a life of faithfulness in ministry, faithfulness to God, and have had impactful ministry. And they give a a servant's award to that individual seeking to serve, to, to recognize them as servants, seeking to honor them the point is not to place these servants on a pedestal, right? We're not trying to worship these individuals as, as though they're, they're so, there's something special in and, of, in and of themselves, but rather recognizing that these individuals were willing to be used by God for the sake of ministry. 
And so we honor such individuals. Again, that might look different from person to person, from culture to culture and place to place. And it wasn't just Epaphroditus that was being to be honored. Paul says to honor such men, men such as Epaphroditus, those who serve with similar distinction. We honor such men. So we have this man, Epaphroditus, a man from whom we can learn much. He was a model servant, being a brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, faithful messenger, dutiful minister. He was a distressed servant, both internally and externally, but with a purpose that he might serve others in the gospel and be of service to others in their need. As a result, Paul says that we are to honor such individuals. He is an individual worthy of honor. May we look at the example of Epaphroditus and consider how we can show honor to others who serve in this way and perhaps how God could use us to be faithful servants as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you so much for this passage. I do thank you for men like Epaphroditus. I thank you that we can learn from his example. I pray that you would help us to welcome and honor individuals who serve with distinction. Individuals like the man who prayed for earlier, Fernando, who is serving and, and laboring working hard for the sake of the gospel in Ecuador. Pray, Lord, that you would work within us, Lord, that that as we gaze upon this example of Epaphroditus, Lord, we recognize that Epaphroditus, he wasn't doing this in and of himself because he was just this great human being that, that is so unique on the face of the earth, but rather Epaphroditus was simply willing to humble himself to rely upon the grace of Jesus Christ within him, knowing that we need grace. So I pray that as we look upon Epaphroditus, that that we would not consider that to be too high of a standard or something that we could never hope to attain to, but rather look and see, oh, here is an example of a man who faithfully and practically lived out the commands that Paul was giving in, in in the text here. Now, this is what it looks like in everyday life. And may you work within us these realities. May we be brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another. May we be faithful fellow workers and and fellow laborers, fellow soldiers in the spiritual warfare that is around us. And may we be faithful servants, faithful ministers to those in need not because we're something special or something great, but because you are and because of what you have done and will do and are doing within us by your grace. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.